Civil War Reconstruction, your monthly look at the war, what led up to it, and the world the Civil War created, with me, Pat Young. A couple of weeks ago, Chris Mikowski from Emerging Civil War and I were doing a a Zoom meeting. Uh, Chris was recording it for uh, YouTube and, you know, it was an interesting discussion. Unfortunately, the sound and the picture were a little bit muddy. We did it while Long Island was getting a foot of snow, so I'm sure my uh, reception wasn't great. But, you know, I just wanted to go through one of the questions that he asked me, which was that if... Uh, Reconstruction was regarded as a failure. You know, and if you read a lot of histories, particularly those that were written by uh, historians, maybe from around 1900 up until the 1960s, most of them would regard it as a failure, at least if they were white historians. A lot of African-American historians uh, viewed it in a much more mixed light, maybe a more realistic light. But if it was a failure, then why is it important? Is it only important to look at as uh, an example of a failed Uh, set of policies or a set of poorly constructed plans. Is there anything that's important about it that's worth studying? So the way I want to talk about this is in relation to the ways that I learned about Reconstruction. You know, I uh, went to Catholic high school on Long Island, and uh, I took an advanced American history course, which at the time was a two-year course. Uh, We used the Oxford History of the American People, which was a college-level text. This was way back in the 1970s. I probably took the course 73 to 75, 76. So, you know, we learned about Reconstruction, and I remember as we learned about it, you know, we we found out that it was considered pretty much consistent with the Dunning School view as a failure, and the failure was largely reflected in the way that uh, white Southerners were impacted by it. In other words, the loss of power over African Americans was seen as a negative. So, you know, that was pretty much the standard view, and it was the one that I learned. When I finished college, I remember an older person who was a friend of mine, her, I I briefly dated her daughter. Uh, She went back to college, and one of the courses that she studied, she's in her 40s, was uh, included uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, Black Reconstruction, which was a seminal work for a more realistic assessment of Reconstruction instead of the so-called Dunning School assessment, which was, which was, you know, it was an academic school. It was uh, based at Columbia University, and it essentially uh, generated the academic image of Reconstruction as a tragic era in American life. And of course, most Americans never read anything by the Dunning School, but uh, they got the Dunning School viewpoint from uh, movies like Gone with the Wind and Birth of a Nation. There were a number of other movies as well. Uh, maybe one day we'll do movie nights uh, on Reconstruction and the Civil War, and we'll discuss those. But, you know, basically what you saw with the with this uh, book by Du Bois was centering black people in the story. 
you know, instead of white people. Uh, I definitely want to talk at some point about how my textbooks described the Reconstruction because it, it largely left out any kind of a subjective experience of African Americans and really only looked at difficulties white people might have had during the Reconstruction era. And that was not unusual. I mean, I wasn't going to a particularly conservative school or a liberal school. This was just a very standard um, you know, school using the New York State standards, but also with the sort of Catholic school academia, which at the time greatly valued uh, the liberal arts education. I think they may have changed a little bit over the years, but if, if you were schooled in the Middle Ages, you would be familiar with the academic course of study in a Catholic school uh, in the 1970s. So then I went into law school, and that's really where I began to see the importance of uh, the uh, Reconstruction era, because in law school, I remember I would encounter uh, Civil Rights Act 1866, and I might see it being used in a uh, case that was from the 1960s, and I would think to myself, oh, I wonder if this is Section 1866 of an act. Um, and then I, I would look at other cases, and uh, lawyers would be filing what were called 1983 actions, and uh, I would think, oh, um, is this a is this uh, an act that was passed in 1983? And what I would find out is is in fact these were both parts of laws that were passed in the 1860s and 1870s. So. Uh, in response to the abuses that newly freed slaves were experiencing, Congress began to pass a variety of civil rights actions. And, you know, we see them used pretty, pretty regularly all through the 1950s, 1960s, 1983 actions, which are really designed to go after actions by local government officials, um, you know, were quite commonly filed in the uh, 1970s, 1980s, and onward. Uh, and, and it was interesting to me to see that, you know, these were not from some recent law, you know, post-Brown versus Board of Education, which is now 70 years ago, almost 70 years ago, but that these really grew out of laws that were passed in the uh, 1860s and 1870s. They were passed in response to abuses that the freed slaves were suffering uh, in southern states, but, you know, they can also be used in northern states. They were not limited in their jurisdiction. Uh, during the Jim Crow era, we see that these went into uh, recession in terms of being used, but you know, if we think back to, uh, so if we think to the early civil rights movement in the uh, 1950s, you know, the, the civil rights movement that we today associate mostly with the figure of Martin Luther King, but which, of course, at the time included a much more broad movement of organizations and individuals. Uh, but if we look to that period, uh, they're almost entirely trying to revive the enforcement of laws that were passed to protect civil rights during the Reconstruction era. So in other words, you know, when we see something like Brown versus Board of, of Education uh, overturning segregated schools, we're not seeing the passage of a new law that the that the Supreme Court is interpreting. We're seeing the Supreme Court interpreting uh, and giving new life to uh, laws that had been passed during the uh, administrations of Lincoln and Johnson and Grant. So that's, that's really important for us to keep in mind. And of course, in addition to the laws that were passed, we saw a large change in the way the Constitution operated. Um, 
you know, I sometimes will hear uh, folks who maybe oppose civil rights uh, talk about different actions of the federal government as violating the Constitution um, because the Constitution didn't give such and such power to the federal government. What they often neglect is that uh, the Constitution was substantially amended during the Reconstruction period. So let's think a little bit about the three Reconstruction Amendments and why they're probably three of the most important amendments apart from the uh, Bill of Rights. The uh, first amendment that was passed was the 13th Amendment, uh, which ended slavery. It was a really important amendment because uh, the Emancipation Proclamation had come out, issued by Abraham Lincoln, and that was a war measure. So that was not designed to end slavery in the United States. It was designed as a war measure to make sure that as the Union Army encountered uh, escaped slaves, that the Union Army had a legal basis when it was moving through uh, areas that were in hostility to the United States government to uh, take those folks in, uh, treat them as free people, and then allow them to travel away from the plantations that they were claimed to be owned on and not to return them to the folks who claim them as their property. Okay, so, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, very important, goes into effect January 1st, 1863. It is not an insignificant document, uh, but it does not end slavery in the United States. Uh, if you were a slave in a place like Kentucky or in uh, Delaware or in Maryland, which were not in rebellion against the United States, then you would still remain a slave under the Emancipation Proclamation because Lincoln believed that he did not have the power unilaterally to end slavery except as a war measure. So, what do we see happen in 1864? There is a growing push among Republicans to actually have a constitutional amendment to end slavery. They begin to see that the war is either ending or that uh, maybe if it's not ending in a complete Union victory, because I think in the summer of 1864 it was hardly apparent that the Union had a guaranteed victory in the war, but that there was going to be some kind of an ending of the war, even if it was through a negotiated settlement, that this would allow those uh, African Americans who had um, been able to seek protection of the Union to be constitutionally free. And Abraham Lincoln was very nervous about this. There is a good little book by a fellow named Christian Semedo, which uh, looks at Abraham Lincoln's thinking on the 13th Amendment. And, and one of the points that he makes is that Abraham Lincoln was, uh, like many young lawyers, or I shouldn't say young, he wasn't so young, he was a middle-aged lawyer, but like many lawyers in the United States, uh, really revered the Constitution. He held the, uh, the framers of the Constitution in very high regard. Um, you know, I mean, one of the courses that every lawyer takes today is constitutional law. We spend a full year on the Constitution. So it's really important to us now as lawyers, but it also is very important to Abraham Lincoln. And he thought that it should only be changed uh, if it was absolutely necessary. So, you know, you think about it, we had 10 amendments to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and then the next uh, two amendments come in between, you know, between those, the Bill of Rights and the Civil War. Only two amendments, right? And then we have three amendments that are passed at the end of the Civil War and in the early phases of the Reconstruction era. So the Lincoln begins to come around to the notion that uh, the only way to end slavery, to make sure that 
people who have been freed by the Emancipation Proclamation and not later returned to slavery is to have a constitutional amendment abolishing slavery. And if you've seen the movie Lincoln, you know the story, which is that uh, while Lincoln could have just waited for a new Congress to take office, in fact, he wanted uh, the 13th Amendment passed in Congress as quickly as possible, and he wanted to make sure it had some Democratic votes. The Democrats were the opponents of the 13th Amendment by and large at that time. And so if you've seen the movie, and, the, and there's a lot that's accurate in the movie, they, you know, there's obviously artistic license, but it's, it's a lot more accurate than most movies that cover the Civil War period or Abraham Lincoln. Um, if, you, if you've watched the movie, you know that he put substantial personal effort into securing the ending of slavery. Then, of course, he was murdered by, uh, you know, someone who was working with a Confederate intelligence cell, John Wilkes Booth, after it had passed in both the Senate and in the House, but before it had been ratified by all of the states. So, in fact, the ratification wouldn't take place until uh, almost half a year or about half a year after Abraham Lincoln was dead. You know, that's not Abraham Lincoln holding it up. That's simply uh, the constitutional necessity of, a turn of obtaining ratification by the states of a constitutional amendment. So, you know, we're, we're talking about a uh, an amendment to the Constitution is the first one that's come about in a long time, and uh, it marks the largest the largest reassignment of property in American history. So we see. Uh, billions of dollars in property and slaves that was held by white people now becoming black people owning their own bodies, you know, owning their own bodies, owning their own labor. And, you know, it, when Lincoln used to talk about slavery, you know, yes, he was very upset about various aspects of it. But one of the things he talked about most was that nobody should own your labor. You own your labor. You are able to sell your labor and make a profit from your labor. And hopefully at some point you can become, you know, you can go from being a laborer to being someone who employs laborers. You know, and that, that was the American dream at the time, and that was the dream that he held out. Uh, maybe it was a, a dream that was already passing from the scene, as we see the advent of large corporations, the railroads, the factories, etc. But at least in the world that Abraham Lincoln grew up in, this was part of the American credo, and it was a viewpoint that he held to. So we have that important development. But we also then begin to see that after the Civil War, uh, there are quite a number of uh, acts of resistance to uh, the end of slavery. You know, and in fact, the all-white legislatures uh, in the southern states, and most of these legislatures were elected by former Confederates. They did not allow African Americans to vote. Uh, they would select former Confederate politicians and leaders as their elected officials. And when they went to their state capitals, they passed something called the Black Codes. Uh, the Black Codes were not passed in, in a, one of, probably one of the stupidest myths is that the Black Codes were passed a, as a reaction to the misrule of the Republicans. The uh, Black Codes were passed in 1865 and 1866 at a time when the legislatures were not dominated at all by Republicans. These were um, what were called conservatives, but they were old Democrats and old Whigs who had largely supported the Confederate cause. And they were all white. All the electors were white, all the voters were white, and all of the uh, all of the members of the legislatures were white. And they passed laws which essentially tried to 
keep black people in a state of slavery without the name of slavery. So what we begin to see is a reaction against that. You know, we see the 1866 Civil Rights Act passed as a result of that. But more importantly, we see the development of the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment is super important, okay, for a number of reasons. First is the the first article of it uh, basically makes anybody born in the United States a citizen, okay? So if your parents were Uh, slaves, you're a citizen. If your parents were immigrants, you're a citizen. Uh, It doesn't matter what your parents were, unless they were part of an occupying army. That's an interesting exception. Uh, but Or if they're children of diplomats of a foreign country. But unless they're in those two excluded categories, it essentially says that uh, if you were born in this country, then you're a citizen of this country, and you're entitled to most of the rights of citizens. So these would be the rights to make contracts, the right to marry, etc., etc. Um, we also see the development of an equal protection clause so that states can't pass laws that say that uh, certain rights accrue to white people but not to black people, or that, um, you know, one of the things that was really pernicious in the black codes was some of them said that if a white person committed a crime, the white person would have to pay a fine, you know, $25, you know, maybe the equivalent of about 500 today for some crimes, and the black person would either go to jail and could be sold at the jail, his labor could be sold at the jail for a year. Uh, So in other words, a reintegration into slavery for some kind of a petty crime, or could be whipped. You know, it's it's incredible that uh, in many cases, uh, the codes allowed for the whipping, not of criminals generally, but of of black criminals. White criminals were not to be whipped. So, you know, this is something that the 14th Amendment addresses. And, you know, when we're thinking about the importance of the 14th Amendment, my gosh, the the 14th Amendment is probably the most used amendment in the U.S. Constitution. You know, we see cases, anybody who's who's in the law knows that we see 14th Amendment-related cases every day. Uh, you know, Bush versus Gore, which determined that George Bush was the uh, winner of the election against Al Gore, was decided on 14th Amendment grounds. Uh, same-sex marriage was decided on 14th Amendment grounds. Um, the uh, various case law involving the children of undocumented immigrants being born in the United States who are U.S. citizens by birth, and those are also incorporated into regulations, uh, you know, comes from the 14th Amendment. It is extremely important because it establishes colorblind citizenship. Citizenship is no longer, at least by birth, is no longer uh, dependent on a person's color or whether their parents had a particular status. It's just based on the fact that they were born in the United States. So couldn't get much more important than that. And then we go to the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment is a lot less broad than it should have been. Frederick Douglass was advocating that it basically allow any adult American citizen to vote, but uh, he was not successful. And uh, the his advocacy for women to be able to vote did not hold up. Uh, He lost on that, and it created a real antagonism between the uh, women's suffrage movement and Frederick Douglass, because the women's suffrage movement had by and large supported African-American voting, Uh, but they assumed that it would be coupled with the ability of uh, women to vote as well. And so uh, Frederick Douglass, in the end, was willing to accept uh, voting rights for African-Americans, even if the amendment that granted them did not include uh, women in it. So we see that, and we see that as a very important 
bill. And if you are familiar with a lot of litigation over the last 12 months, you know that the 15th Amendment uh, voting rights is being uh, both challenged and uh, being used in order to challenge certain new state laws that are being passed. So, uh, you know, so when we take a look back at the legal history of the Reconstruction period, we know that it created the framework for civil rights laws. It's always incredible when people say to me, civil rights is a modern concept. It's not a modern concept. Uh, The term civil rights was not only being used by people in the 1860s, it actually was the title of laws in the 1860s. So come on, please know your American history. Civil rights acts go back to 1866. Okay. Uh, It established citizenship rights, it established voting rights, etc. The fact that there was a successful attack on these in the 1870s, 1880s, and then really finally with Plessy versus Ferguson in the uh, 1890s did not mean that Reconstruction failed. It did mean that Reconstruction was was destroyed in some places, violently in most situations. Uh, you know, we've seen areas where there were coups, where there was were armed bands at the different uh, voting places to make sure that blacks couldn't vote. And unfortunately, the federal government by the 1880s was uh, moving away from protecting the rights of African Americans. But that doesn't mean that the underlying laws were bad or that those laws failed because those laws are being used now. You know, the the 14th Amendment is essentially our charter of freedom. It's something that protects large numbers of people who don't even know they're being protected by it or who, who may disdain the 14th Amendment. I don't know. I remember I had a high school history teacher who said, I don't think the 14th Amendment would be able to get ratified in the 1970s, which was when I was studying it. I thought that was strange until I read it closely. And I realized like, yeah, there's a lot that's controversial in here. There's a lot that might not be welcomed by people. So we've talked a little bit about the legal framework, which I think is important. But there are other aspects in which uh, the Reconstruction era was very important that go beyond the law. You know, as a lawyer, we love to talk about the law, but there's so much more to it than the law. Uh, One of the things is the, and this is really why we have to center any discussion of Reconstruction around African Americans. You know, they were really the subjects of Reconstruction. So, You know, we see after the Civil War, uh, white former slave owners are asking, who's going to go and pick our cotton for us without being paid if we don't have slaves? Is there somebody we can find to replace black people? And of course, they could not find somebody to replace black people. And then we hear, well, who's going to vote to uh, protect the rights of black people? This is if you're a Republican. A lot of moderate Republicans thought, well, all we have to do is get uh, white people in the South to vote to protect the rights of blacks, and then that's all we need to do. We don't need to give black people the right to vote. And I think this was a pretty much the dominant view within the moderates in the Republican Party in 1865 began to change by 1866 after all the violence against blacks. But what we begin to see is that there's a recognition that, well, you know, we have to have blacks vote for themselves. If they don't vote for themselves, they're not going to have access to any of the things that government can provide. And what we do see as blacks are able to vote is one of the most important things they vote for is education. Uh, They really create the first public schooling systems in many states in the South. You know, I grew up in New York State, and in New York State in the Constitution, dating back to the War of 1812, uh, the Constitution guarantees that every uh, district in New York State has a school, a free public school. And it doesn't just guarantee that, it's really kind of 
interesting. My, my beloved wife is a librarian. It also guarantees that every school has a public library. So if you are a, an incorporated area in New York State, you had to have a school and you also had to have a uh, library, and that that eventually spread to even in unincorporated areas, what we refer to here in New York as Hamlet. So uh, those areas all have to have public schools and public libraries. But if you went to most parts of the South, it wasn't just blacks who weren't getting educated. It was whites who couldn't afford to hire private tutors or send their children to private schools who weren't being educated. You know, sometimes I will hear people wax poetic, and I, I, I visited Stonewall Jackson's house when I was in Virginia, many, many years ago, 25 years ago. And one of the things I like to talk about is that Stonewall Jackson taught his slaves how to read, and that was a marvelous thing. And of course, you know, uh, not a good thing to be owning your slaves, even if you're going to teach them how to read. But for crying out loud, there were four million slaves. How many of them was Stonewall Jackson going to teach how to read in his spare time after finishing up his work as a uh, as a professor at VMI? Uh, at the end of the Civil War, you basically have an uneducated white population and a black population that not, not only uneducated, but was legally barred from education. The fact that some blacks were able to form hedge schools where they would hide in the woods and learn how to read and write, etc., learn their letters, as it was called in those days, is not the same as having an education system. Uh, you know, I always, whenever people talk about something like Stonewall Jackson, I'm like, you know, my kids, uh, it took them a couple of years in school going every damn day before they were able to read. So, you know, the idea that somebody is going to teach them in the, on the side is a little bit disingenuous. You know, maybe somebody like Frederick Douglass, who was obviously a genius, uh, could be taught. He said he was taught by the street kids, many of them Irish immigrant kids who, I don't know where they learned how to read, but he, he was taught in the streets of Baltimore by those kids who didn't see why they should know how to read and he shouldn't be able to know how to read. But, you know, we have to remember that there was an active attempt to deny uh, black children, black adults, the ability to read. And the same thing with uh, churches. You know, the, the, there was uh, black Christianity during slavery, and there were definitely some slave owners who did encourage church services. But if you look at a lot of um, plantations didn't allow black preachers. Uh, if there were white preachers who were brought in, they often gave sermons on the importance of the slave honoring their master and serving their master. So, you know, if you're a black person and you become free, uh, you're not looking to, oh yeah, I wonder if we can get that great pastor back, the white guy who kept telling us that we had to be joyful while we were being whipped, or we shouldn't worry about today's life, we should just worry about the afterlife, and that we really serve God by serving our master. I mean, who would want that? So you see the formation of schooling for black kids, and you know, the image is often of the New England school marm coming down south, and that, that certainly was true in 1865, 1866. A lot of, a lot of young white women came down as part of their religious commitment. Uh, they were people who were opposed to slavery. They wanted to do something about it. But, you know, most of them didn't stay around. Um, you know, they had anticipated coming down, like most relief workers, they had anticipated coming down for a period of months or years and then going back home. Uh, the fact that they were often shunned by Southern society, Southern white society, uh, certainly limited their stays in many of these areas. One of the things that's really interesting is I see very often rumors would be floated by conservative politicians. Again, these were 
old Whigs and Democrats who had sort of united in their opposition to black rights in the South. But a lot of the conservative politicians would float rumors that individual white women who were serving as teachers were sleeping with their black students. You know, if you are familiar with the uh, kind of classic vision in the 1960s that would be floated in many parts of the South that white women who were involved in the civil rights movement were involved in it largely for reasons of sexual gratification. It's sort of the same thing that we were seeing back in the 1860s and 1870s. And eventually these women would move on. And so then the teachers became largely African-Americans. So black teachers teaching black children. Um, It was interesting. I was looking at some Freedmen Bureau records and uh, some of the Freedmen Bureau officers who initially really welcomed the white teachers began to see that the black teachers were more likely to remain to become permanent parts of the community and they carried other benefits for the community. So black schools began to be set up. And, you know, when I say black schools, most of these schools would admit whites on the same grounds as blacks. And some of them actually encouraged uh, poorer whites to join them. But if you were a poor white and you went to school, uh, your parents may find themselves boycotted by other whites because they were then seen as traitors to their race. So what we would often see then is these educational institutions would become almost entirely African-American. They'd be staffed by African-Americans, supported by the African-American community, and attended by African-Americans. The schoolhouses themselves became community centers, so they became a major target of the Ku Klux Klan and other white terrorist organizations because they knew that first education was a danger to white supremacy, but also the fact that black people had a space that they could meet in where they could come together, they could gather, and they could form a common agenda, transmit skills, and do organizing. That was also considered a major threat. The other institution that was formed, they persisted, and we should understand that these schools persisted well into the 18, into the 1950s, so they lasted a good 90 years, uh, and they, in addition to generating these other benefits for the black community, they helped generate a black middle class. You know, the teachers would become, you know, more educated. Uh, many of them went to what were called normal schools, which were teachers' colleges. A lot of the historically black colleges and universities actually started as schools to teach teach uh, 18, 19-year-old blacks how to teach uh, children, black children, how to read and write. So, you know, you'll see, you see the development of colleges coming out of this as well. Uh, we also see another major institution, which is the black church. The black church had not been, by and large, by and large, because there's always exceptions, had not, by and large, been an independent entity under slavery. It either was banned in many places, or it was under control of whites, or it was done sub rosa. In other words, it was done in hiding. In none of those situations could the black church really develop as a basis for power in the African-American community. But under freedom, you see that there is a major move to establish black churches. So black churches and black schools are really two of the most important institutions. And they, the African-American community gets started on both of them right away. And the black church is often supported uh, interdenominationally by white churches in the north. So the white churches don't organize these black churches, but they do provide some money towards the building of church buildings, and they also provide some money in order to support seminaries to train blacks as preachers. Uh, We also see a number of situations where they pay to uh, set up newspapers so that the black churches can stay in communication with one another and can develop a common agenda. 
So the black church is very important. And, you know, if you grew up in the 1950s or 1960s, and I know it's a declining number of us who did, who are still alive, but you know that a lot of the leadership of the African-American movement at that time were ministers. They were preachers. You know, Martin Luther King, of course, being the most famous. But, you know, many of them were preachers. And as with the black teacher, the black preacher became part of a class that could advocate for a community in a way that under slavery, when you didn't have black teachers and black preachers, the black community could not be heard. You know, these were folks who were able, when they saw opportunities, to push for greater recognition of the rights of African Americans. While all of these institutions would be pushed down in some way or another uh, during the uh, 1890s, on through to World War II, uh, they don't disappear. You know, and so it's not by accident that when we see the civil rights movement revived in in the 1950s, uh, they're using the constitutional amendments that were passed in the 1860s, 1870 to pursue their rights. They're using the laws that were passed in the 1860s and 1870s. And that the real spearheads are often the teachers and the um, and the ministers who represent institutions that really first saw, I won't say first saw the light of day because they existed under slavery, but really only became mass institutions uh, during the Reconstruction era. So these were institutions that remained and that continued and that had developed ways of asserting the rights of African Americans in a very hostile territory. So I hope this has let you know why I think Reconstruction is important to study. Uh, There's a whole bunch of other reasons why, and I'm going to go into them in some future installments, but just want to make sure everybody knows this podcast, while it is about the Civil War and Reconstruction, it's going to cover both. It's not just about the American Civil War, but it is also about the Reconstruction era. And I will hopefully give you a good variety of both subjects. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back in a month. Thanks for listening to Civil War Reconstruction with Pat Young.